New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we'll be exploring how horses can be true partners, valuable teachers, and healers in our journey for self-healing, personal growth, and transformation. They can show us powerful lessons in how to be effective leaders. And you'll be surprised what our guest today, Carolyn Riznick, reveals about the secrets of how a horse becomes and maintains its leadership of a herd of wild horses. Here we'll be exploring the extensive language of horses whose communication skills are a matter of survival without words. Carolyn Resnick is a master horse communicator. Besides growing up with horses in a Southern California desert, she spent three summers of her childhood gradually becoming accepted into a community of wild horses, culminating in her ability to ride a lead mare bareback and without a bridle. This was accomplished just from the bond and friendship that they shared. She's the founder of the Resnick Method of Horsemanship and offers many online courses, clinics, retreats, and certification opportunities that create a magical connection with horses using rituals that are innate to the horse. Carolyn Riznick is the author of Naked Liberty, which is subtitled Memories of My Childhood, Guided by Passion, Educated by Wild Horses, The Language of Movement, Communication, and Leadership Through the Ways of Horses. Join us for the next hour as we explore the wisdom and kinship of horses with our guest, Carolyn Resnick. I'm speaking with Carolyn from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Hello. Carolyn, welcome, welcome. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and to talk about this wonderful subject that's so dear and dear to my heart, as many of my listeners know. You grew up with horses on the desert in Southern California. And just explain to us that first moment when you connected with horses, you were three years old. Can just describe that moment for us? Well... What I remember 
my earliest connection with horses, I don't remember. But when I was three years old, I heard hoofbeats in town. And it was in a parade. And there was lots of noises, marching bands, a calliope playing music. But all I could hear was the sound of those hooves on the pavement. And it was exhilarating. And I asked my mother, what is that sound? And she said, that's horses. And she lifted me up to the window. And I reached out because I could see the horses making the sound on the pavement. And that is when my life changed. I love that story. I love that instant connection, so to speak. I'd like to talk about some of your early horses and I know early on, your father gave you a horse. You called him Mustang, and his breeding really came from probably a wild Mustang. And you tell so many wonderful stories of Mustang and your relationship with him. So uh, please give us a, a view of Mustang and who he was to you. Well, before I got Mustang, I knew what I wanted is I wanted a wild horse. And my dad found one. And he had been trained. He'd been uh, uh, from the wild uh, for three months. So he'd only had 90 days on him in training. And uh, he was six years old before he was ever discovered by humans. So he was really, really that that horse that that never gave up his freedom and his dignity. That did not happen for him. And so my my father wanted to make sure that this connection that um, that I was hoping to have was uh, going to work. So he took me to Mustang, and I got to ride him. And he was better for me than anyone had ever been in his life. He was like riding a cloud. In other words, his walk was a cloud. His trot was a cloud. His canter was a cloud. Everything about him was like being lifted into the heavens, so to speak. And I so honored the wild horse because I felt that the wild horse knew stories in how to be really connected to a freedom and a sense of, of belonging and a sense of, of that, that time when there is nothing that stands in the way of your greatness. And I knew that they knew more than we knew. I knew it. I could see it in his eyes. It's what we call the eyes of the eagle. You look in that and you know that every answer is right there in those eyeballs. So when they brought Mustang to us, he was not a happy horse. Uh, I remember the day perfectly. He came in a horse trailer and he was like fire out of control. Um completely out of his body and, and just absolutely looking past everything that was in his control. And the man who brought him out of the horse trailer uh, handed him to my dad. And when my father took him, Mustang settled right away. He just settled down. And from there, uh, my dad took him and turned him loose with the rest of our horses which was in a large field. And what took place there was extraordinary 
how he went about getting to know those horses, not like anything you had ever seen about a domestic horse and how a horse would perform in that way. He performed entirely different, and it's what I really expected to see. I didn't know what I was going to see, but I knew that what I was seeing was the truth. And from that, my dad said, you're going to spend the, the day with him. And so the first day on the ranch, I shared territory with him all day long. And, um, and, and watching how he connected with our herd. And it was, um, it was extraordinary. And, and that first day, I went ahead and made a mistake right off the bat. <laughs> wow. What was that? What, what did you do? Well, he, you know, he was all about making a connection with the horses and he didn't care anything about me at that point. But then he started um, allowing me to to follow him around while he was grazing. And I just, wherever he went, I went with him. And by the uh, late afternoon, I started leaving him, and he started following me. And I stupidly walked up to him. And I put my arms around him, and he ran away. Oh, that was too close. That was in his territory. Not, I yeah. didn't know. I mean, you know, I thought, oh, you know, like most horse people who love horses, they think, oh, we've got a bond. Yeah, right. No, he, yeah. He, he's a wild horse. He wanted his freedom. And I felt so badly that um, that I went and I found a a place to to sit down and and uh, and lick my wounds, so to speak. Mm. And um, then the next part, magic happened. I fell asleep. Guess and, who woke me up? And so you you fell asleep? What on the ground, right there in yes, the pasture? Right just, on the ground. Yeah. The the, the 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 paddock was like five acres, and so he came and he tugged at my at my pants. Wow. And I and I didn't wake up right away. I, I, I woke up in um in um in an altered state between being awake and not being awake. And in that altered state he talked to me. And then I woke up and then I heard my dad called me and saying it's time to come to dinner and that was our first our first day together wow wow so in a kind of dream state you actually heard him talking to you yes yes it's amazing it's amazing he was so intelligent so enormously intelligent and obviously had that kind of leadership quality different different horses have qualities and he knew how to gain respect and he knew how to stay free and he knew how to support and he was an amazingly uh dangerous horse if you confronted him if you were kind he was kind 
Well, what a privilege, what a privilege to, and honor to have him in your life as a companion. I mean, a true mentor and companion. And I know that you had many uh, mentors throughout your childhood and later on and probably even continues on to this day. Uh, many of them horses, but some of them have been human mentors. And I can think of um, one particular one uh, that you write about. It, it's His name is Ray Hackworth, and he was working with a really, really, really difficult horse. And you describe how he was in a paddock with him, and all Ray did was just walk back and forth on the paddock with a bucket full of nails and work on the paddock. I It just, this amazing story, he's going to train this horse and, and, and get this horse to be not so ornery, but he's not even looking at him. He's just doing something else. The reason I tell these stories is because the, the, the single story, if you listen closely, will cause you to be able to connect with any horse, the way I connected with Mustang that day. Great. We want to go on with this in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Carolyn Riznick, and she is the author of Naked Liberty, Memoirs of My Childhood Guided by Passion, Educated by Wild Horses. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Carolyn Resnick. Dot com and she spells her name Carolyn C A R O L Y N Resnick R E S N I C K dot com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carolyn Riznick, and we're talking about the benefit of our kinship with horses. And there were many stories that you tell in the book, and you were saying that the reason for these stories, why they're important, and how they can inform us, you might elaborate further on that, please. Within each story I tell, if you listen closely, you can find the connection that will carry you to a place that is complete and safe and what do you call it, um, a cross-species bond. I find a cross-species bond 
is deeper than the bond that we have with our own kind. If you look at cross-species bonds of, of anything, it doesn't have to be human. It can be bird to dog. It can be cat to dog. It can be um, uh, elephant uh, to turtle. Um, but when, it ha- when that cross-species bond happens, it is something that is never lost. It's there to the life. It's when you have that, I get you. And when that light goes, I get you, it's permanent. That's so marvelous to hear you say that because I've often wondered why when an animal companion of mine has left for whatever reason, why I'm crying. I'm burst into tears more over my animal companions than I do my human companions. I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> the lighter side of it's almost embarrassing. <laughs> it is. It is. It's what, you know, it what gets you up in the morning. Anytime that you've had that one-to-one connection of where you feel complete. You're not needy. You're not wanting any more. It's just done. It's just, it's, it's about we, it's not about me. Right. When we have a connection within our own species, whether it's horse to horse, dog to hog, it is more about the animal worried about his space in the community. Where when it's a cross-species bond, it isn't that. There's no, uh, is this in balance? It's just so, if that makes sense. And like right. when we were talking about um, Ted at all, and what an amazing relationship he had with this stallion that really did not like people. And he was too old when he came in to be trained uh, to, to be uh, a successful mount working horse under saddle, uh, moving cows and, and cutting cows and and a nice reigning horse. He was six years old and had made up his mind, never was he ever going to do a human being. And I was able to have the the um, the ability to see what Ray did. Now, Ray did not tell me what he was doing. He was a man of little words. I had to watch and figure out what was happening. And this is what he did. I watched him. The horse did not want to have anything to do with him. And he was in a small paddock and a stall area. So the stall and an out paddock. And they were open uh, to each other. And so Ray would share territory with him. And when he wanted to move in the paddock, he would chose that when the horse was in his way. From, from point A to point B, in other words, a straight line. In other words, he's at one, one side of the, 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 the wall, next to one wall, crossing over the paddock to the other side. Well, when that horse was in the way, if the horse felt willing and not worried about Ray, he would walk around him. And when he got to the other end, he showed the horse pounding and fixing the fence, which there was no fence that needed to be fixed. But, you know, he was looking like, 
you know, like fixing. So he things. was being busy fixing the fence that didn't need fixing. In other words, you were just in my way. I was just needing to get over here. I'm going to walk around you and fix the fence. When the horse seemed to be uh, used to him and getting a bit aggressive because it was his tendency to, to not like people, Ray would then say, you're going to move out of my way. And he would move. He would wait. He would, it was no, there was no, if you looked at him, it was done with grace and ease. Done with grace and ease, but he made sure the stallion moved. And he would go to the other side. And he kept doing that, sharing territory, walking around a horse to not walking around a horse. Go asking Sometimes horse. he would ask the horse to move, but do it very he, subtly and not with, he not would, with he force. He would move around a horse when the horse had a soft feel. Yeah. When the horse was on the muscle saying, you're not going to move me, he'd say, no. I'm sorry, you're going to have to move. And he'd take the time that it would take to not escalate the horse's interest to being aggressive. He would, you know, wait and say, no, no, come on, you can move, come on. And he would move. So it was like to be patient until the horse moved, but he didn't give up. He didn't, he, he said, all right, if he's going to be ornery here, he's going to have to move. And he would just wait it out. Yes. And. What the result of that was is the horse then uh, formed a understanding of where Ray was coming from. And when he took that horse out of that pen, he didn't do anything with that horse at all except put a saddle on him and ride away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's all he did. And, and yeah. I, if I hadn't met Ray, I wouldn't know that I could depend on something so simple. So it was like he he established a kind of mutual respect in some right. way. Is that what? Right. Yeah. In, in other words, he took leadership in in making a judgment of when he needed to walk around the horse and when the horse needed to move around him, and and just taking it real easy, real easy, real easy. In that way, Carolyn, it's it's really the same thing. In a herd of horses, and you mm -hmm. describe this in your book, and if it's a good leader horse, a good stallion that's leading, there, uh, there's moments of individual rights that are respected within the herd, you know, mm -hmm. their territory or whatever it is that they need. But then there's this overall community of cooperation where there's a there's a balance between the community rights and the individual rights within yes. a herd. Is am I getting that correct? Yes. What we need to learn in our own our own culture is rules control us. And we don't want rules to control us. Because rules are not flexible. And relationship is flexible. And to have a relationship is where a a bond can really grow. If you have rules, you don't pay any attention to each other. You just follow the rules. You don't get to know each other. You don't get to know how you're built. Nothing. It's when it's that, that interaction that happens that just is always always there. So what horses have that's different than we have is they know when the community should stop worrying about what the community needs. 
and serves the individual. And the individual knowing when to stop wanting his needs fulfilled and serve the community. They have that balance in knowing how to keep everything afloat. And we have that, but we have it when we're in the same kind of situation that the horses are in. Like when we have disaster, we come together and bring the best part of ourselves to the, to the front that we can't do anything but serve our needs and serve the needs of everybody around us so that at the end of the day, no, no life was jeopardized. True enough, it's when survival is at stake, like in that situation, then we come together. That's that's the best of us. So yeah. that so we need to remember that, that how it maybe is more subtle that we don't have to wait for a disaster to know when it's proper to serve the community rather than an individual right. Yes, and and it comes from looking at everything. This is fun having us cross species bond with each other, not worrying about, you know, who gets the piece of pie. Uh, just knowing that, let's say, I'll tell you a story about my, my neighbors. When I moved to my, to my ranch in Sonoma, both of my neighbors hated each other. And I was in the middle. So I had one neighbor on one side, one neighbor on the other side. And they actually exchanged gunfire. Yikes. And I had a horse ranch between them. And I had made friends with both sides. But I never, never interfered with what was going on between them. I just hoped that my horses would not get shot. And one neighbor, you know, said, if your dog comes over on, my, on our property, we're going to kill him because we have chickens. And so what I did with that is I invited them over to my ranch. And before I did that, I bought some baby chicks and I taught my dog how to herd baby chicks. And I had them over to lunch. And I said, if you lose any chickens, it's not going to be because of my dog. <laughs> oh, that's and great. The, and the other person said, we don't want your horses here because we're getting toxic. Um, uh, chemicals in the water from the manure, we want you to put in a French drain. Well, the French drain cost me, oh, probably $7,000 to put in. And I put it in. Then they said, we don't want the French drain because it's not working because now the water gets in there and goes putrefies in the rock. So we want that out. So I said, okay, we'll take that out. And I just kept doing that. And I kept doing it. And I kept absolutely delightful. One neighbor called and said, there's a fox in the field and he has ray rabies. You better take care of that fox. He's on your ground. And I went out and I looked at him and I called him back. I said, no, he didn't have rabies. And he says, well, what's wrong with him? I said, well, that fox thinks he has rights. Because <laughs> he's out in, in, yeah. in daylight. So yeah. what happened was over the years, everybody became friends. All because somebody made change. And that's my next lesson for myself is to understand change can be had, ha can happen if you put your sight on it and stay within that understanding that it can happen. I'm really struck by that. And it reminds me of 
one of one of your mentors, I'll call him um, Taché, who was a young man who was doing an impossible task, and he had the philosophy. He said, "Well." take one step at a time and he was sure that someone with the skills to finish the job would work would show up and it's like a philosophy of being a magnet to attract what is needed in our interactions so i think that that's what you're talking about there i'm speaking with carolyn resnick and she is the author of naked liberty And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carolyn Resnick, and we're talking about the interspecies communication and relationship that really is so beneficial to humankind. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, horses and their language. And you've had the moment where you spent as a young woman, I mean, I think you were even under 20 years old at the time, that you spent three summers by yourself in the wilds with wild horses, with a herd of wild horses. And uh, you learned about the language of horses, and they, they don't speak with words. They speak in other ways. And yet you describe, I think you describe in your book, uh, how if you really look at a herd of horses, they're communicating with an enormous amount of body movement, I mean, a flick of an ear, a stamp of a foot, a swish of a tail, uh, all of that is like, you describe it, it's like walking into a very noisy and crowded cocktail party, and everybody's talking at once. So talk about this language that's constantly going on that horses have with one another. Well, I think the important message there is to take time and have it so that you can see that going on. And that takes quieting the mind and being present to everything as it is. What makes horses um, different than other animals in nature is that they have elements like ourselves, where uh, a school of fish is a school of fish. They don't have elements of getting into uh, uh, pecking order battles. Birds in a flock. There can be thousands of them. Nobody runs into each other. There's no leadership. It just goes. But with horses, there's a conduit from that world to our world that brings us this ability so that we can understand it. So a horse, when he's born, has to be raised by his mother, then raised by his peers, and then raised by his community, and then understanding what it is to be a true leader and not dominant behaving. So when horses first get together, there's the dominant horses come together, and they find out where their position is with each other. A lead horse will not 
get into any battles at all. They wait until the order happens. When the order happens, the dominant horse does not want to leave. All he wanted to be sure is that he got what he came for. That's all. Just to be clear, a dominant horse is not a leader horse. That's different. No, it's different. It's all about what he wants. He wants control. He wants power. He wants food. He wants all. A lead horse wants order. And they're different. Like if, if I went out to wild horses and I said, okay, we'll take this dominant horse, bring him in, and we're going to bring in this lead horse. Lead horse. He's the leader of the group. And we're going to do that with the mares, lead mare, dominant mare. And I can show you that with a lead mare to make a connection, that it, it's really quite easy, very simple. The dominant horse, we have to worry about it, that horse's fear-based attitude toward you because dominance is created from fear. So we have to end the fear problem. Just like my neighbor's shooting. They're, they're, it isn't that they're dominant. They're fearful. They, you know, they're untrusting. We have to develop that trust, you know? So one of the ways that I develop trust with the horses is I put food down for them and I put food down that's mine. So they can eat their food, but they can't eat my food. So they learn some rules. And this I got from how mares raise their foals. The first lesson horses learn in life is with their mother while nursing. When to nurse and when not to nurse. How to stay in connection and how to not get in the way of the mother while the mother is moving quickly across the land. Because otherwise, they would get stepped on. So when they're born, they're born with an ability to know this. In other words, they come out, they'll move away from anything that's coming toward them. They'll follow anything that's leaving. It's just automatic. It's like how birds are and, and schools of fish are. They know that. But as they start developing their mind, their mind gets to, to the practice of saying, well, maybe I could do this or maybe I could do that. And they learn that with their peers. They learn, am I, do I need more dominance? Do I, do I need this? And they fall into, and the sooner that that baby understands how the leader is operating, he'll become a leader. If it takes him a long time, he, that is going to be a dominant horse for some time. So you can take that dominant horse and you can say, no, there's no fear here. I'm never going to push you against your will. I'm going to work with you. But no, are you going to take advantage of me? Right. So those are the two things that have to be established. And that's what that was what uh, Ray was doing with that stallion. He said, I'll give you anything you want, but you have to listen to me. You have to listen. And, you know, another uh, way that horses are like humans, they actually form friendships. They, they, they have preferences. They, they have, oh, I prefer to be around this horse in the herd or that horse. They have little preferences. Is that, am I getting that correct? Absolutely. They absolutely have, have the ones they want to be with. And this is what's so, so terrible about horses in captivity. We throw horses together that shouldn't be together. Yes. In the wild, they find each other. They find their people, so to speak. You know, say, this is my people. Uh, if you have two horses that 
that fight for the same rank, that can go on for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, we don't need that. So we have to, to, uh, be careful in that when we choose one horse, that with the next horse we choose is a fit. Well, that's right. I mean, really to be observant and not to force them. And uh, I'm also thinking, Carolyn, about um, the idea that no horse should be left alone either. That they are, there are herd animals and that, that when you see a single horse out in a pasture all by itself, just oh, nothing else around, it's so sad. I feel so sad when I see that. I mean, even if, even if the people who had that horse got a little burrow or a goat or, or anything to be a companion, because it's not natural for a horse to live all by itself. It, it causes them to go crazy and in some cases cannot be returned. And it's just like people. In other words, you put somebody living by themselves over a period of time and you bring them back into living with people and they can't. Well you take a solitary confinement in in prisons. There it is. There there it is. And I'm thinking also there's an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And I'm even thinking that in uh Japan the Prime Minister of Japan created a cabinet post to alleviate social isolation. Uh, and so here we are, we're in this epidemic of loneliness. We're like horses living in a pasture all by ourselves. And it's no wonder we're in stress and anxiety. Any, any comment on that? Well, I think one of the things that really, really helps in this time when we have to live by ourselves is that we can fill ourselves with, uh, with a animal, dog, cat, bird, nature, and the birds outside. I, in the morning, I wake up, I go out, and I, I hear the morning songs of the birds, and it reminds me of the morning song in my own heart. But if I don't see it, I forget to practice. Right, exactly. I'm thinking also when you talk about hearing the birds and all of that uh, and paying attention to nature, I want to go back to another story uh, that you tell about when you were in your first year of high school. It was you were at a prep school, Verde Prep School in, I think, Scottsdale, Arizona. And you all, uh, for part of your projects, you all went up to uh, the Hopi Hopi. Mesa, the second Mesa of the Hopi people. And you wanted to meet a Hopi elder, a Hopi um, spiritual leader. leader. And I know that that we won't have time for you to tell the whole story within this time frame, but we could at least start it. Because why I'm reminded of that story by what you said about noticing nature is that uh, the person who was the the teacher, I, I think his name was Lame Deer, he had said, you know, that, okay, okay, if you want to meet a spiritual elder, 
you're going to have to know a couple of rules. And one is that you can never be the first one to speak. And you don't even speak then unless you're asked a question. And the only thing you can offer are the words, thank you, as a spontaneous speaking. And that's it. I'm going to let you tell this story because it's just an amazing story to me. Well, what caused me to have that experience is I was too shy to do what we were asked to do when we were taken to uh, the Hopi Reservation, and that is to meet a family and move in with them and get to know the culture. That wasn't going to happen to me. I also knew that I really uh, honored the uh, the culture and the, the spiritual values of the stories of the Kachina dolls and everything that the Hopi uh, culture provides that all all other tribes look up to and appreciate that they hold the history of the connection to to all things. And so um, I really honored the the uh, spiritual leader of any culture and and so um, Joe told me that he would not be living in the community of the Hopi tribe. So that his house would be out of town. But he didn't tell me which house. But I chose a house that I felt was by itself. And I walked by him every day and went to this hill and I sat on this hill in the morning and I didn't move and until lunch. I came down and had lunch uh, at where the where our trucks were. Then I would go back and I would watch until the sun went down and went in for dinner. And I did that every day. And I figured that that would prove to him of my stillness. And he had to appreciate that. I mean, if he's watching this, he had to appreciate the stillness that I had. And so I was showing off. And I'm going to, because I want you to tell this complete story. So I, I'm, But I need to tell our listeners and remind them that I'm here with Carolyn Resnick and she is the author of Naked Liberty. And the word liberty in, in that book is really talking about being free and being at liberty and horses being at liberty. And we've seen some of them perform that way. And it's so amazing. So I'm here with Carolyn and we're talking about all of these things. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carolyn Resnick, and she's a horse communicator. 
par excellence. And we're talking about when she met a spiritual Hopi leader, uh, and she, for 10 days, you were going out and sitting on this mound and feeling so proud that you were doing such a good job at it. What were you actually feeling for those long hours of sitting there? You didn't have a book to read. You didn't have stuff to write on. You were just sitting there. At that point, I was quite highly evolved because I'd already done the wild horses from 10, 11, and 12. So meditation was something that I had done all of my my life from that age. So it gave me uh, a place while I was in a private school of being able to exercise when I knew best. I enjoyed being alone. I enjoyed the desert. I loved the the kids, but too much of it was too much for me. You know, I needed my quiet time. But what happened to me is I thought that I was going to like it on that hill. But what happened to me was I found something that I didn't like. And that was the first time in my life that I really experienced true suffering. And it was happened on that hill. And I, I can't go back there, but I can tell you that um, I had a revelation of, of what it was to have very, very little respect for myself. I became entirely lost. And from that, I had an experience that I got so down that, you know, that God saved me and lifted me up into to finding um, um, my way back with a higher consciousness in how to go forward. So if I didn't get a good grade from the, uh, the Hopi spiritual Thomas Bianca, if I didn't get him to speak to me, it was okay. I was going to get an F on my report uh, when I when I did my term paper, and that was okay. It was okay. I was used to that. So as I'm coming to the last day, I'm walking past. Uh, this was like the 10th day. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I was walking by, I pretend like I didn't see him. And he um, he called out to me. And so at that point, I just went into a stupor and I did everything that, that uh, Joe had told me to do. And I just walked up and I just looked at him. And, um, and you know, I just walked up because I was waiting. Because he shouldn't have spoke to me because I was a woman. Uh, and that was another thing. His uh, Hopi spiritual leaders do not speak to women. So at that time, I was told that. Whether it's true, doesn't matter. That's what I was told. So anyway, um, you know, I told him my name. At that time, it was Carolyn White. And he stood and he looked at me oddly and said, my name is Thomas Bianca. And I think Bianca means white. So I'm Carolyn White. He's Thomas Bianca. My grandfather's name was Thomas White. Is that not wild? So anyway, we sat down and uh, he offered me tea. It was weak and, and I drank it. And he talked to me just like 
You would to anybody you knew in town. I never said a word. I then, he, you know, he ended the, the tea, and I got up and left. Um, and out of that, I wrote a paper. So it isn't really, it isn't really what takes place that brings what you want to the table. Because what I would have liked to have had is an A for what I had to say. Well, not only did I get an A and an A plus, but I was the highest paper written in that school for our experience with the Hopi uh, people. And all of the time I was living in a total um, not knowing just that thing about going back to, to Taché of taking one step at a time and reaching out. And what I found was my life's journey with horses and my relationship going forward through the next part of my life. Oh, my. That's so beautiful. And I, I just want to tell our listeners that um, I had the experience of interviewing Thomas Banyaka uh, at some point. So it just like, oh, it just was a thrill of my life uh, to have him. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what's so What's so wild is when I wrote that story, I had to send it to the um, the Hopi, I don't know what they call themselves, the Federation or whatever, to get that chapter approved. And they sent that back, that paper back to me many times and said, no, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, but they wouldn't tell me why. And they would, you know, and they would give me insulting remarks back. You know, what do you think we are, horses? <laughs> and so I'd write the paper again and again and finally because at the time I didn't know his name and he says, they said well that hill and they gave me the name of hill and they gave me the name of the man and he said he would love to come and visit you oh my gosh wow and so anyway that was that was the, the you know there's a formality that exists in, in their culture yes. that does not exist in our culture Yes. And it's the same thing with horses. There is a formality with horses that does not exist in our world. Yes. You you must follow that formality because that way you stay connected to your true nature. When you step over the formality, now you're getting into a part of yourself that is not that's not uh, mature enough to make decisions for the well-being of the people you're with. And your own well-being. So it's it's a it's a presence that you always stay connected, no matter how deep the bond you have is. There's a difference between wanting to know and wanting to question and be doubtful in what you hear. And if it comes from doubt, you're never going to be satisfied. And uh, Joe had said that when I, I kept saying, but what about this and what about that? And that's when he responded to me, he said, mm, be careful. He said, be careful. Let's not do that. Because doubt, if you have doubt, you're going to go in the world of doubt and that's never going to serve you. And my family had done the same thing. They said, if you're going to ask for help, don't ask more than one person. So know that when you pick someone to listen to, don't reach out for more information. Do that. Oh, we're so greedy. We're yeah. so greedy. You know, we're just, oh, collect more and more and more. But 
you're saying just be patient. And throughout your book, that's the teachers and the mentors who mentored you. They never told you how to do it. You had to sit there. And I think that your grandmother was the one who really trained you to be observant and to just watch. And and that was your gift from her. My grandmother was a scientist of biology and astrology. So she combined those two worlds. And I remember her saying to me once, I said, why do you study botany? And she says, I want to figure out how life is created. She would, you know, she was a mathematician and, and I would go to her house at night and she would have all of these formulas that she would write, you know, just long, long, long formulas of which she never shared with me. And I'm so sorry about that because she was very, very uh, focused on her work and she shared it with no one. Mm. And you never figured out why she never shared that. Well, I know why she didn't. It's because it was too technical. She wrote her diary in Latin. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Yeah. And no one, no one could read it. They knew it was, it was Latin, but the, it, it, her depth of Latin was extraordinary. And what she, you know, what she did is she said, you know, everything in nature, if it wasn't there, we would not be able to do the things we do today. Mm. We didn't know how to build a plane if we hadn't seen a bird fly. We would not know how to live underwater if we hadn't seen fish live there. So the two things that she had me do was she had me imagine like we had a pond. She said, go out there, watch the fish, become the fish, become the bird in the sky. And she has really become. Don't just go out there and say, oh, look down and see what the earth looks like from that distance. Just look down and imagine what it is for that bird and what that is like. And when I went to go to the wild horses, she says, go out there and get a message from, I don't remember now, from whatever it was. That was when I found out that being with the wild horses, I shouldn't be on a horse. I should be on foot. And that's what you did. You you really joined them as one of them eventually. And that people people can read that in your book to really hear the details of what you as a young woman, I mean, as you say, you were 11, 12 years old at yes, the time. 11, living 12. Ay, 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 living out there with wild horses. It's an amazing story. Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. This is just the beginning of an inkling into your wisdom and your your wonderful life that you're sharing with us. Thank you so much for being with us. I've been speaking with Carolyn Riznick, and she is the author of Naked Liberty, Memories of My Childhood, Guided by Passion, Educated by Wild Horses. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, carolynresnick.com and she spells her name carolyn c-a-r-o-l-y-n carolyn resnick r-e-s-n-i-c-k.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org i'm justine willis toms you've been listening to new dimensions this is program number 3781
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.